Welcome to Scenario D, the podcast that takes you behind the magic by giving you the facts and a whole lot of feels. I'm Lish. And I'm Kurtz. And this week, we're determining whether everybody really wants to be a cat with Duchess, O'Malley, and the rest of the Scat Cat gang. So grab a trumpet. Or a piano. Honestly, just something groovy. As we explore... Which film, Curves? Naturellement, the Aristocats. Okay, Curves. I've got a question for you. Uh-huh. Do you even like Disney movies? Because I feel like the last couple of weeks, it seems like a lot. You have just not been into the movie at all. So it's I'm true. just wondering, just checking in. Still a Disney fan? You're still with me? I, I was on a walk today, and I actually asked myself that exact question <laughs> because I was thinking through... You know, the first, what is it, six yeah, episodes something like of this that. season yeah. where I'm like, wow, I haven't enjoyed really watching anything. I've enjoyed mm-hmm. talking about it. Yeah. And there's pieces of all of them that I'm like, that's kind of interesting. But as a whole, you're right. I haven't been uh, as enamored. But this is where we turn the corner. This okay. is where it starts to become Curbs's season. Because okay. from here on out, I think there's maybe maybe one that I'm not like super jazzed about, but the reality is most of these other animal movies now, I'm mm-hmm. a big fan. Like this one, this is one that similar to Cinderella, every time I watch it, I'm like, oh, this movie's great. Yeah. This movie's We're talking about the Aristocats today. And I agree. You this sure are. this every time I put it on, I, I kind of forget that I like this movie. It's not in my like usual like pullout, but every time I put mm-hmm. it on, it's so funny and so cute. It is. It's just it's a very enjoyable, engaging watch it's also i think the first episode from this season where i knew i would like it like Mm. some of the other ones like bambi even the jungle book 101 dalmatians i went in having rated them really low Mm -hmm. but thinking like maybe i'll change my mind and this one and i mean i didn't spoiler we all know i didn't i was like these movies are still terrible in my opinion i don't enjoy them however this one i was like this is going to be good because it's always been good it's never going to change from being good for me it's a very 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 Mm -hmm. very solid animal film i really do enjoy it it's not uh it's not the best it's not amazing like it's It's not like a work of art or anything it's just no but this this one the nostalgia factor is way higher for me than a lot of the other ones because i grew up with this one on vhs so this was one of the like seven disney vhs's that we had when i was a kid so it was one of the few options, and it was the one that made me laugh more than most mm-hmm. of the other ones, right? It. Like, it just it had more going for it. I also think it's interesting that this one, the music, is not nearly as big a factor for why I enjoy it or don't enjoy it. A lot of the other ones, it's like, oh, it wins points because the soundtrack is so great. I actually don't like, like, any of the songs in this movie. I like scales and arpeggios fine, but I don't really like... Thomas O'Malley's song. I don't, I've never really liked Everybody Wants to Be a Cat. Like, I, I've, I've I agree. never enjoyed I it. find actually like that is like the worst scene in the movie because I'm just like irritated yeah, well, and all of a sudden it's so loud and every, and I maybe I'm just like an old woman, but I'm like, oh gosh. Like, I thought you were going to say it's because the Xeroxing is so obvious. That, in that too. Scene. 
I mean, that's that's what caught my yeah. attention this yeah. watch through more than other times because we've now talked about that era mm-hmm. of Disney films a few times with Sword in the Stone and Robin Hood in particular being like, these are cut and paste. And yeah. this film came out before Robin Hood. You see a lot of these scenes like the dancing ones in the Jungle Book first, then this one, then Robin yes. Hood. So yes. by this point, we're kind of like beating those horses yeah. right into the ground. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but no, this this is where it becomes uh, reintroducing the idea of me being a Disney fan to everybody okay. and saying right, like, hello, great. hi. Glad you're I am still, still here. here. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad to be here as well. I mean, but we, we both knew at the outset of this season that like animals is not my jam. Like mm-hmm. I just, it's not... Mm-hmm doesn't get my heart rate up. I don't know. I'm way less excited about a good animal film than I am about a princess film. That's Happy fair. World Princess Week, by yeah. the way. We're yes. recording this during World Princess Week, so. Yes. Shout out to all the princesses mm-hmm. out there. We see you. We love you. Yes. We want to Absolutely. be you. <laughs> and I don't want to hear anyone be like, you're all princesses. No, I'm actually not. Technically, I am not, so I don't want to hear that. Okay? I'm, I'm not royal. I'm a queen. So. Oh my gosh. Well, okay. And I'm the court jester, so together we make a really good <laughs> What do we make, Carbs? Pair. What do we make? Pair. A pair. Also, uh, we happen to be wearing kind of opposite colors today, so that's kind of cute. And my well. glasses do match like your shirt, and your glasses match mine. So, look oh, at us. Oh my, my goodness. It's almost like we know how to accessorize. Poor segue. Duchess's one collar is blue. My glasses are blue. Aristocats. There we go. Disney at the time. Segway. <laughs> you are, you're, the, see, you're the Segway queen. You are royalty. There we go. We oh, did it. We brought true, it all back around. True. Wow. Look at me go. Crown so, <laughs> getting into the subject matter for today, we did talk about in the Jungle Book episode how that was really the last film that Walt had a heavy hand in. We're really entering a new Disney era with this film because this one, while he was involved in some of the development and some of that process, the majority of this film was made and a lot of the visual development and all that stuff happened after he passed. Right, without him. Yeah, it's really the first one that for the most part was done without Walt. From a macro Mm -hmm. perspective, Roy was of course left to supervise the plans that Walt had laid out for the Disney company Mm -hmm. as a whole. They're continuing to develop Disney World in Florida. That actually opened a year after the Aristocats came out. They're keeping both the live action and animation divisions going strong. Mm -hmm. Roy was very cognizant of the massive creative void left by Walt, specifically in both the Imagineering and animation divisions of the company. Roy knows mm-hmm. how to run a company. He's always been, you know, the business head, the finance guy, like the other half to Walt and kind of wearing that kind of... The compliment, yeah. Exactly. Like they worked together really well because they had different gifts and excelled at different things. So I think Roy at this point is aware that there's just this massive hole that he himself cannot fill because he's not the creative guy. He's not going to step up and all of a sudden start making creative decisions on these certain divisions Mm -hmm. because that's just not his strength. That's not who he is. And they really didn't have a very solid succession plan in terms of, okay, like this guy is going to be in charge of Wed Enterprises now. We've got this guy is going to take over the creative of Disney animation. There wasn't really a solid structure and everything laid out. So it's a lot of just trying to figure it out now that we don't have Walt anymore. 
And I mean, Walt died so suddenly yeah. that yeah. they couldn't have really arguably had any of those things in place. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we see that still, though, at companies like Disney. Yeah. Let's only talk about Disney. We saw that with the whole Shapec thing, right? Where it's like totally. the people, quote unquote, lined up for some of these roles don't seem to be the best suited, even though they might have been in line for it. So, like, Disney still can't figure out how to have success. Oh, totally. Can't and figure like, out then, can't figure it out now. Like, Bob Iger still, you know, they just keep extending him. Like, eventually, he is going to die. He's, like, in his 70s. You know, it's yeah. like we need to, like, start thinking about, like, what what is, who's next up and actually training that person so that they're mm-hmm. ready when they have that job so anyway right, you're right exactly. you're right this is a a still to this day it's problem that we have. Trend. <laughs> yes the 1970s and 80s are really the what we'll call walt would what would walt do era mm. of disney mm. animation did Studios. they get bracelets i they should have those bracelets yeah the WWE. ones wwjd yes what yes. would walt disney do yeah wwwd <laughs> too many w's, w's. yeah so many days. It's just like a website at this point. Yeah. 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 For anyone who's like confused, Grilish and I both grew up in Christian homes. Yeah. And WWJD stands for What Would Jesus Do? And mm-hmm. you could buy these like woven bracelets or make them at Christian camp in the craft hut. It was oh, like yeah. a moment. It was similar to like a Livestrong bracelet, which yeah. again is really dating us because obviously Lance Armstrong is no longer like talked about positively. But no. there was a time where yeah. he was like, you know, the best... It's very motivational. It, yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah. He had, he yeah. had cancer, whatever. It doesn't yeah. matter. That, it, it's, I just felt like I needed to feel, I just felt like we needed to give context for these, you know, references that yes. are definitely outdated, but also somewhat niche. So yeah. sorry for derailing what you're saying. Okay. It was too many W's, too many D's and too much information. Yeah. Honestly, it's yeah. just Couldn't it's make a, a bracelet. Couldn't make everything. a bracelet, but we're in the era of basically like everybody now that Walt's gone, they want to, they're thinking about, okay, what would he do in this scenario? Like, how do mm-hmm. I kind of emulate, how do I make him proud? Even though he's not here and he's not giving any guidance. Yeah. There's of course, all these people at the studio who knew him well and remember him and they want to keep the thing that he created going. And it like means so much to them to honor his legacy. And there's all these Mm -hmm. different layers to it. And we've also, we've learned a lot about Walt this season. And that's something that I feel like I've kind of observed along with many other things is there was Mm -hmm. an unpredictable nature about him. Like there wasn't necessarily like, it's tough to know like which kind of stories he's going to gravitate to what he's going to green light, what he's going to think works. seems a little bit random. So it's very hard. must've been very hard for all of these people to be trying to recreate things and think like, Oh, like what would Walt want in this situation when he was just, Sort of a spaz, if we're being honest. And it's just... Yeah. No rhyme or reason. It, it's, could, it sounds like it would have been an incredibly tough situation for all of these guys at the studio. And I don't blame them for feeling a little bit lost. It, yeah. it makes sense. It does make sense. And also, like, I feel like I've found myself in these types of situations. But it's only because someone's gone for, like... A week. Yeah. It's not like, oh, they died and are never coming back. It's kind of like, I'm going on vacation. I need you to kind of yeah, exactly. run run with this. And even if I'm confident in the decision I'm making, there's always in the back of my mm-hmm. head kind of like, is that what they would do? Like, yeah. Is, is this going to be something that they'll back me up on? Or are we going to have to, you know, 
rethink For this. Sure. But of course, at Disney at the time, you don't you don't have the check and balance mm-hmm. of like getting an answer to the question of what would Walt do. You're just kind of left on your own. I mean, honestly, if I'm being really cynical, what would Walt do? Probably continue to be racist and make horrible decisions about equity at his company. But like, you know what? Maybe that's something we can leave in the past. I don't yeah, know. That, we can uh, make new strides <laughs> on that one. But from a creative decision-making perspective, it's just, I don't know. It's just like an absolute like How toss-up. do you, and, yeah. oh, and with Disney World opening. Yeah. So soon after he died too. Oh, that would add so much more pressure because it's like how much of our creative resources do we put into each of these camps? It's like how much goes into live action, how much goes into animation, how much goes into like Imagineering and park mm-hmm. development, and then how? Where does the money go, Roy? I don't envy Roy's job at no, this point. No, no, definitely really not. Don't. And I feel like because Disney World was kind of the like fast moving train that they were just yeah. like that would have taken all of his attention. Like I feel like he would have had to really step in there. Like there are all kinds of things mm-hmm. that hadn't been sorted at that point, even like logistical like permits, and like that's when he actually got uh, the whole like county to be its own yeah. separate th- jurisdiction or whatever that is mm-hmm. so he had all that stuff going on he was probably paying very little attention to what was going on at disney animation studios and kind of right. like you guys kind of know what you're doing right like <laughs> cool like i i can't imagine what else he would have been able to provide to those people right. at that point so it's kind of up to Guys that had been there a while, the leadership team, we'll talk about, you know, Wooly Ratherman later, but them to step up and take the reins on things because there was just nobody else. We just needed people yeah. to step up and do it at this point. Right. So going back to the development of the Aristocats, this happened in the early 1960s. They were looking for some animal stories that could be a two-part live action episode for the Wonderful World of Color television program. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hang, hang on for just one second. Yes, you heard correctly. You're telling, you're telling me they want to continue doing some old yeller BS to try to make more animal stories with with real real animals animals. yes yes correct why are we doing that like listen do you know the movie milo and otis do you know the movie? no i don't oh my goodness milo and otis was this iconic live action real real animals about a cat and a pug that became friends like and Mm. they go on this adventure together i love unlikely like pet animal friends so do i you know what you won't love is how back when this film was made which would have been probably like the 70s so around Mm -hmm. the same time as aristocats so many animals dying in the (gasps) making of movies like this because milo and otis lish was like this cat being in the woods, like owls were coming and stealing <gasps> the cats. Oh like, my I, god, that's horrible! So when I hear that Disney was like, "Let's make some more live action animal stories," I'm like, "Animals no. were being so mistreated no. on these film no. sets." Like, I'm sure the old yeller dogs, oh, they ain't yelling no more. Let me tell I you, know. like those, like yeah. it's terrible working. But it's just, I also my other part of the hold the phone here, slow your roll for one second. It's just what is it? That made them so certain that people want animal stories. Like, I'm over here really disinterested in the first five films we talked mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. from from this collection of animal films. Like, really not feeling it. I can't be alone in that. Where's the data? Where are the hard facts about I the mean, fact that like people want 
animals. I think that... What is it? But most of the films we've talked about were a, like, financial success. Like, have we talked about any films this season that weren't successful for Disney? I mean, I guess. Like, when we talked about the Heroes ones, it was, like, flop after flop after flop in terms of, like, box office. And, like, so, like, there's your data. I don't like this data. Can we change it? Like, I, I also, though, do you happen to know... Were the live action animal films they were making also performing well? Or was that kind of just like we're over I, here? Because they wanted this know, to be live action. Because that's, so. that was like TV. So that would have been like a low budget. Mm-hmm. Like it would have been very, mm-hmm. a very different story with just some like True. cats running around. Like it, it would have been, I have no idea how those in general would perform. Okay. But we're talking about yeah. something that would, the end product would have been extremely different. This mm-hmm. would not have been. You know, cats running around Paris. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I still. <laughs> cats at the club. Yeah. New Disney World of Color program. Yeah. Coming to you in 1970 <laughs> television sets. Keep, keep the lights on. Yeah. <laughs> like, exactly. I, I don't know. It's just, it's striking me as odd that they're like, this is, this is the solution for whatever problem we're trying to solve is a live action animal two-part series. It's just series something that somebody said, hey, this would be a cool idea. And so then they were like, all right, let's kind of look for some interesting stories and get the ball rolling on development on some of these. So that's that's really where we're at right now. All right. Okay. I'm not with you at this point. I like We both know that I get there because I like this movie, but yes. so far, I'm not with you. It's okay. It's okay. It gets better. So two gentlemen by the name of Harry Title and Tom McGowan were working okay. on this and they came across the children's book about a mother cat and her kittens and they wrote up a story treatment based on that. It's a descriptive synopsis. I mean, that's... that's it's about a mother all, cat and her kittens. That's all we got time for right now because there's a lot more to get through. But um, yes, they sent a treatment, they did a full treatment of it, sent it to Burbank. It was at that point, unfortunately, rejected. Not sure who was in charge of story selections for Disney television at that time, but whoever it was, they basically just went around them and sent the treatment directly to Walt himself. Now, literally stalked him in London, England, and sent it to his hotel room. Like, extremely bold. Very bold. Yes. uh, Fortune favors the bold, apparently, because Walt loved it. And he approved making it into a live action feature. So they changed from this point. They redirected from being a television kind of lower budget thing into a live action feature. And Walt had some script revisions and stuff that he wanted. So now we're upping the ante a bit because we're going live action. We're going big. Mm -hmm. As they began further development on it. Uh, it was eventually shelved. However, like it just like wasn't working for what they were looking to do. Title right. recommended that it be reworked for an animation feature instead. With Walt's mm-hmm. blessing, he pitched the story to Wooly Ritherman, who was directing Jungle Book and stuff at the time. And he agreed, right. yeah, this would work great as an animated feature. This is something we could do. So they temporarily shelved it with plans to resume right after Jungle Book and artists started freeing up from that. When things started to get going on development, Title was asked to resume focusing on live action projects and to step down from this one. So he had to leave. And one early development contribution that is credited to Walt is that the cats can talk to each other and not humans. 
similar to mm. Lady in the Tramp style. So that was kind of gotcha. one one little piece that uh, he did have some involvement in. So after the Jungle Book, we've got our main duo, really, of the like 60s, 70s, which is Ken Anderson and Wolfgang Reitherman on this film. So Ken started doing the development since nobody from the original project was involved. So he's kind of starting from scratch, just has like the basic general idea. I didn't do a ton of research or really find a ton of research on where the original story was kind of headed, but I get Mm. the sense that we've gone in a bit of a different direction here with Ken kind of doing some of the development. Right. Disney did see Anderson's original sketches and approved them before his death, but that was really his last involvement that he had on the film. Apparently, before Disney passed, he kind of essentially handed over the directorial reins to Wolfgang or Wooly Reitherman. He was directing Jungle Book at the time and Mm -hmm. was set to do so on the Aristocats. And he was the only person really besides Walt that had done a full... Uh, directing of an animated feature at that point. So he was just like the go-to person for that. We haven't talked too much about him. There's reasons. I'm not the biggest fan of Wooly. I was about to say, I was like, (laughs) I don't think you really like this guy, do you? No, but I will say that I did a little bit of more research on him for the episode and, you know, coming around, coming around. Okay, okay. Um, Originally born in Germany, moved to America as a very small child. He was hired by Disney in 1933 and started right away as an animator on the Silly Symphonies cartoon, Funny Little Bunnies. So this is pre-Snow White, pre-Features, cartoon shorts territory. He continued working on a lot of shorts. I think it was like 30 plus that he had been involved in and was a part of Disney's first animated feature. Uh, which was Snow White, and he animated the slave in the Magic Mirror. Oh. So how they kind of structured things for the first few animated features was they would each take a character that they would be responsible for, and they'd animate a character for a bunch of scenes. They eventually kind of evolved that to be more sequence directors. So it's like you'd have a certain sequence, and then you would animate all of the characters in that sequence, or you would have other people animate it, but like you'd be responsible for overseeing it. They called them like sequence directors. And so you, you know, give feedback, give notes. So you were kind Mm -hmm. of like a, a... round of someone that would see it before Walt would see it and approve it kind of like help other artists work on it, etc. So he was mainly a character animator for the first few Disney films. He actually left the studio to serve in World War II. He was a part of the armed forces until 1946 and he had earned the rank major and then was sent home. So we've got Major Major Reitherman reporting back for duty. When he returned, he did do some animation for Ichabod and Mr. Toad, but started on Cinderella, he became one of these directing animators for a specific sequence. So Cinderella, he was responsible for Gus Gus and Jacques trying to get the key up the stairs that was like his that's a good scene yeah it's a great scene yeah i like that one and so so well done so that was his kind of first chance at kind of directing and kind of having that oversight walt of course would always be overseeing the production as a whole but this was Mm -hmm. just like a way to kind of help 
train brings some people up and help animators to work with other animators. And I think it was like a relatively good system that seemed to work well for them for a while. Right. He really started to separate himself from the pack as a director in Sleeping Beauty. So he directed the Maleficent Philip showdown at the end. So he was stuff. becoming very good at the conflict or the climax. And he was starting to get all of these very big, important moments and was starting to shine, not just as an animator, but as somebody with that ability to direct and lead and bring mm-hmm. things out of people. So it's a different skill set. And that's not, you know, we've got all these nine old men, all super talented animators, Absolutely. but they're all going to kind of show that in different ways and how yes. it was really coming out for Wooly was just that leadership quality that not everybody had the sword and the stone. So that was the first movie that had one director for the whole film. That wasn't the Walt. No, no. Wooly. Oh, it was Wooly. This Why is all I... Wooly. <laughs> no, I thought for some reason, was Ken just the art director on that one then? Yes. He was just the art oh, director. Okay. Yes. Because I was like, we we talked about Ken as if he made that whole movie himself, but no, oh. Wooly was there. <laughs> yeah. Because you didn't like Wooly at the time. <laughs> Wooly was you also like there. I mean, okay. we're giving Wooly his moment now. Ken had his okay. moment on Sword on the Stone. <laughs> Sword on the Stone, what I thought was good about that movie, and check out that episode. That's one of our like best ones, I think. Is so the art direction is so good. So that's why I like wanted to talk about Ken, because I'm like, right. Ken did good work here. The rest of the movie, I don't you know, but you you also were real salty about about Wooly. Yeah, like you. Yeah. I don't know why. I mean, you I just, blame him for Robin Hood <laughs> and you know so many things. Here's hey. my thing. I wasn't planning to bring this this up, but this is what should. I this is what I kind of realized is Wooly. Like what I don't like is I think he's too silly, and I think that mm. works for like you can have like a fun like I think Jungle Book's like a fun like buddy movie but then you've got to follow it up with something like you need a princess movie or you need something more epic and it just went silly 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 it's too many sillies in a row too many sillies they were all woolly movies and it just like it was just too much silly but when I like look back at like how he started and what he started at Disney he was doing these silly symphonies that were mostly gag based and like humor was really the basis of what Disney was doing in the early days. And that's kind of where he comes from. So I think learning a little bit more about his journey, I think I understand how he got to that and why he likes that so much and why that may resonate with him, especially in this era of trying to think like, what would Walt do? And if that's, you know, a lot of the stuff that he did with Walt and like what he is thinking about and really resonated with him, like I get it. But it's mm-hmm. just not, we're not, en- we're entering my, like, not so favorite section. It's definitely not your fave. Yeah, of Disney movies. No, and no, a lot no. of them we covered in yeah. our hero season. And it's just it's not, like, Wooly's fault, but it's, you know, it's not, it's just not my favorite. That's fine. Anyway, I digress. This guy was, he was the bridge from Walt to no Walt. We discussed there wasn't really a succession plan, but I think the fact that he had a film and a half under his belt was at least something. He did definitely feel some sort of responsibility for making sure that Disney animation kept going, that they kept trying to do what Walt would have done and keeping his legacy alive. 
He was a strong leader. He was well-respected at the studio. And he stepped up at a time when we just needed somebody to step up and make some decisions. So to close my giant spiel on Wolfgang Reitherman, I have a lot of respect and appreciation for him. Come around. I'm glad Mm -hmm. I got to do this little deep dive on him today. Uh, because he was probably my like least favorite nine old men, but now that's probably like milk yeah, call. yeah. So I, I remember our conversation with Daniel from Ink and Paint mm-hmm. Pod in our Disney Adult season. I feel like Wooly came up in that conversation, and you were mm-hmm. like, <laughs> and Daniel was like, uh, what? excuse me, and you were like, yeah. don't, don't, not a fan. My opinion is my opinion. Yeah. Not a fan. And now, I mean, I I understand a bit more now why you were so against him mm-hmm. I because honestly you might have said it was like silly 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 before and I just forgot because you know I was wrapped up in how much I was enjoying the silly silly silly, silly. <laughs> yeah so yeah. I, I mean except for sword in the stone because that's trash I'm sorry like, <laughs> that's just not a good movie it's not even that silly it's just dumb it's just bad it's not good wasn't good there was not a lot happening you know more needed no. to happen no, and you know, that's something actually that a lot of people have said about this movie, which I find really interesting, because I think a lot of things happen, but when I was looking, like, rewatching this film through that lens, I was like, oh, I can see why people say, like, nothing really goes on mm-hmm. at all. Like, it is it is a very simple plot. It is very much, like, I mean, you described the story that they found and liked mm-hmm. as a mother cat and her kittens <laughs> and that's it and I was like that's the plot eh? that's pretty much it <laughs> but that up. is that is kind of what it is I did actually find one note that said one of the original drafts had Duchess attempting to find suitable families to adopt all of her kittens that would mm. like foster their creative gifts but it was going to be a much more like 101 Dalmatians feeling adventure comedy and that's not really what they wanted to do right. here and by they I guess I mean Wooly because yeah. he became director and was kind yeah. of in charge um but that, yeah, clearly, clearly that direction for the plot didn't really stay. It became much more, I don't even know how I would describe it. I don't know. It's not really a romance to me. It's not like Lady and the Tramp level romance. It's not Jungle Book level silly. It's kind of just there. <laughs> like, I like it's, it's an ensemble comedy, I guess maybe I would call it because yeah. there's so many characters. Like I, it's so almost many. a romance. Yeah, it's it's a hard film to put into a category. It has a certain flavor because they did a lot of great work in situating it in Paris, like very clearly. Mm-hmm. And this was something actually before he was kind of let go from this project. That was Harry Title's idea. He was like, hey, that worked for 101 Dalmatians, like making it feel very London. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this in our conversation about that film. It was very London that made it feel like a real place and made it feel like a more accessible real animal story and I mean yeah some of the elements weren't that accurate for the time period like certain labels on things were not actually what it would be in the early 1900s which is the time period that this kind of takes place in but you know things like the Eiffel Tower were accurate um they had hand cranked cars right like the milkman is like cranking a car so that kind of helped yeah make it actually feel like early 1900s and this allowed this you know ensemble cast of characters to really feel like they live breathe eat, sleep, exist Mm -hmm. in a real place. So even though they are animals that talk to each other but can't talk to humans, which inherently is something that doesn't happen that way in real life, the rest of these elements allow them to feel like fully fleshed out extensions of a more interesting story. And these characters act as a kind of smoke and mirrors (laughs) ruse that things are happening. Because again, we can't even define what this 
type of movie is. We can't even give it a genre besides animals. That's what makes films like this one, especially when it's animated, be so reliant on the characters being mm-hmm. likable, fully fleshed out, and something that people can sink their teeth into because that's what people are going to remember when they think of this movie. They're not going to remember... Like, oh, the plot was so engaging. Like, no. Even Bambi has the passage of time. We don't even have that here. This takes place over, like, 48 hours. Like, I it's feel really like that's why, truncated. like, maybe why I don't remember that I like it. It's because, like, I, I don't, like, I don't remember, like, feeling all these, like, emotions. They're going on this yeah. journey. Like, it's just, mm-hmm. you're enjoying it while it's happening. But then when it's over, you have immediately forgotten about it. Yeah. yeah. No, it's true. And I mean, I guess then I think the question that most people would ask themselves is like, do I like the characters yeah. in this movie? Do you like the characters in this movie? I do. Yes. I think yeah. for the most part, they're great. I'm a little bit confused as to why Marie has become like the main like branding piece from this movie. That mm. doesn't really, I don't really get that. Doesn't but drive. No, she's definitely not my favorite. But for the most part, I think as an ensemble cast works really well. I would agree. So yeah. let's dive in. Let's do it. Let's start with talking about the kittens because the kittens are the ones that seem to really have made some any sort of impact on people. Like I know Robin mm-hmm. several times was one of the three kittens with like two friends at Halloween. She, I think, like loved Marie. I think she was like mm-hmm. a Marie fan. She was a so Marie that's, fan like, for it's, sure. It's definitely like a thing. There is there's a market yeah, and for I, all that Marie I mean, stuff they're putting out. I understand why. Like, she's cute. You know? I mean, they're all cute. They're all... They're, I'm they're a Berlioz really... fan, personally. I don't know why he doesn't get more I agree stuff. with you. I am definitely, I think, a Toulouse gal, which says something about Oof. us, I feel. When he paints on the piano, like, I get stressed out. I'm like, what are we doing bringing the paint over to the fancy woman's piano? <laughs> I mean... Toulouse. Put she doesn't away. care. She has a freaking yeah. rescue cat society in her basement by the time this movie's yeah. over. Like, no no litter boxes anywhere. I bet you she wipes those cats' butts. Like, for probably. sure. It's like, yeah. line up. And it's like, no, I'm not doing that. Poor Sorry. Edgar probably has to. Yeah. I don't know. The kittens are an interesting cross-section of, like, different types of personalities. And Disney really didn't shy away from making them seem like real kids, which I also Mm -hmm. think is a departure from what we see. Because even, like, Mowgli, for example, in Jungle Book, he doesn't seem like a real kid because uh, a real kid raised by animals is not... Yeah, like, Pinocchio is more of a real boy (laughs) than Mowgli, okay? But Marie, for example, spoiled brat. You know, she's a tattletale. She's super Mm -hmm. cocky and prone to trouble. Like, she's kind of supposed to be the mini duchess, but, like, before duchess goes through a maturity growth spurt. You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. she's also, like, that budding romantic. How romantic. Like, that whole thing. She's got that going for her, which The most annoying damsel in distress ever. Oh, oh. She's she's like a five-year-old who's been slapped in the face. I don't know. She's just, (laughs) she's not... No five-year-old should ever be slapped in the face, I want to be clear. I'm here to tell you that that's not okay. And we yet, don't hit she's, five-year-olds. We don't. We don't hit any child, okay? We don't yeah. hit any child. Or people, really, at all. I've hit a person. Well, we're on. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've, I've done it. Never yeah, mind. I, yeah. I slapped a friend full in the face in university. It was a very liberating experience. I loved it. Oh, um, okay. Anyway, that was a... a tangent for sure a little bit of a divergent but uh marie is definitely an annoying damsel in distress that's the bottom line here she is that a super annoying sister as one of three and the only girl and the one in the middle i definitely was a marie growing up which is super annoying for me to think about now because she was also 
the girliest, of course, she's the only girl in this lineup of kittens. And when I was a kid, I didn't like girly things. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't, I didn't know how to make them fit with who I wanted to be or the other things I was interested in. So I just kind of outright rejected them. And Marie is fully embracing those, you mm-hmm. know, stereotypically girly things, which sets her apart really nicely from Toulouse, for example, who I know you don't love because of the painting on the piano, but he's the mini O'Malley, right? Not only mm-hmm. are they the same color, but he's also kind of overconfident. He's extremely quote unquote boyish with all the fighting, right? Like he sees O'Malley mm-hmm. kind of as this cat he wants to emulate, which is really obvious in just all the ways that they've set him up as a character. And then you have sweet Berlioz, who's like this little introverted creative little musician. And he's really adorable. Um, each of these kittens have way more personality than we saw in the Dalmatian puppies or even honestly, than we saw in some of the characters in movies like Lady and the Tramp, in my opinion. Um, I would, I would definitely agree for Lady and the Tramp. They just gave them an accent and they were like, there's your personality. That was the only story building that went into these characters. The the supporting characters really didn't have any room to shine. They didn't have any way to really express themselves beyond just the Mm -hmm. way they looked looked and sounded not even by what mm-hmm. they said and I think that you see a lot more of that character development happening even just in their names like all three of the kittens mm-hmm. were named for famous French figures so Toulouse was named after the post-impressionist painter Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec we have Berlioz named after Hector Berlioz who was a romantic composer and then Marie is after Marie Antoinette so a lot of these kind of mm. French yeah you know pieces to like pull on which is really really cool but of course the two main characters that really need to be given some attention are duchess and o'malley and they really displayed a lot of clear obvious somewhat boring but also worth talking about similarities between lady and the tramp Mm -hmm, lady the tramp came out what like 15 or so years before this movie it was really the first instance where we're seeing any sort of romantic interest between animal characters before that we were talking about films like Dumbo and Bambi and by like I mean only those two and those were infant children as animals it was and it was more about animals being animals like it was it was Mm -hmm. watching them exist in a human world Lady and the Tramp was now inviting us as humans into the animal world through you know the use of camera angles it's focusing more on the way that they look and feel they have personalities whatever so this iteration of that kind of storytelling allowed disney to take it even further and you can see them trying to push these characters mm-hmm. a bit further and i think they were successful with duchess i actually love duchess as a kid oh. I didn't care for her, like, at all. But rewatching it as an adult, like, over the past few years, I'm like, Duchess can get it. Duchess is awesome. First of all, she's a Turkish Angora cat, and those are beautiful cats. They're, like, mm-hmm. really, like, hoity-toity rich people cats. And I could never. They're, like, the Charmin cats. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. those super fluffy and soft. And she's one of Disney's first female heroines in this Disney period. She's not a princess, but she actually right. can That's stand true. on her own. Like, Lady yeah. is not a heroine. Lady's a loser, okay? Like, Lady can't get anything done without Tramp. But Duchess was operating just fine on her own, honestly. She doesn't Mm -hmm. fall for O'Malley's kind of, like, flattery. You know, she makes him work for it. She's a single mom. Gotta love her, you know? Mm -hmm. And she's really elegant, classy. She's collected. She just never loses control. She finds herself outside of her comfy lifestyle and is like okay we're gonna solve the problem though like we're gonna figure it out let's get the kittens in the basket let's figure out what's happening and 
she has family as her first priority at all times. And that family Mm -hmm. involves both Madame and her kittens. So O'Malley is always the secondary figure in her, Mm -hmm. any of her relationships, any of her like pieces of life. You know, her goal is getting her children home safely. And that's a super admirable goal. It's it's something that a lot of people can relate to whether it's kids or a friend or a loved one of any kind Mm -hmm. that kind of protective element of her character is something deeper more interesting a little bit more fleshed out than we saw with a character like lady but i think the thing i love most about duchess is that she's not snobby either there's no Mm. elitism here with her like she's very open to experiencing new things meeting new people like o'malley kind of you know, introduces her to his, to Scat Cat and the rest of the Scat Pack. And she's like, this is great. Like, love yeah. it. What a party. Like, so interesting. Tell me more about that. And again, that's something we wouldn't have seen with Lady. Lady was like, no. get me back to what's comfortable because mm-hmm. that's what's comfortable. So really interesting heroin growth here. Heroin growth. It's like you're growing heroin. I, <laughs> like, I don't. First Curbs. We're getting dark in this episode. I, Jeez, I you're flapping five-year-olds or growing heroin. Five-year-olds growing heroin. I don't think you grow heroin, though. <laughs> it's no. not like a root that could be no. picked. But still. Yeah, you're right. It's taking a dark time. You know what? Uh, it's, been, it's been a week and it's only Tuesday. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> anyway. Duchess's goals, we can both agree... And that means that she's part of the reason people remember this film as being any good. She is like a big piece of Mm -hmm. people remembering that they enjoy this film because we've already agreed the story doesn't do it. Now, you can't have Duchess without O'Malley, though. You need all all of him to compliment all of her to kind of balance them out so that this feels like a story worth watching. Now, without looking at our notes, can you say all of his names? Oh, no, definitely not. Okay, well then let me say them for you. I don't Abraham, know the song. Listen, listen, I'm about you, to say it. Okay. Abraham DeLacy, Giuseppe Casey, Thomas O'Malley, The Alley Cat. Hey. Hey. Impressive. Honestly, Impressive. I would like to know where he got these names. He's an alley cat, which means he doesn't have, like, owners. Did he just give himself mm-hmm. all these names? Probably. And, like, I, why? I don't know. I get the impression that he did have owners at one point. Like, he's got some kind of, like, dark history with some mm. humans. You can kind of tell. Well, and Tramp so. did, too, you know? Yeah. With my favorite. Yeah. Stop that racket. You wait the baby. Like, you know, yeah. clearly they both have been hurt by somebody. Yeah, exactly. They don't know who. Just, like, not all people maybe nice he had Maybe he had fancy, rich owners, and that's why his name is so pretentious. And then they decided possible. we don't want him anymore, which is making yeah. him kind of sad, but also makes him slightly more interesting. Because I've never been a huge O'Malley fan. Do you like O'Malley? We've I had do. That. Yeah. I do. I am slightly annoyed. I feel like they're overusing the Phil Harris here at this point. Oh, this is a fantastic segue because yeah. not only is O'Malley kind of tramp, he is just Baloo again. Like, it I is know. the same yeah. character. But instead yeah. of Baloo seeking a platonic relationship with Mowgli, this is O'Malley mm-hmm. seeking a romantic mm-hmm. relationship with Duchess. Like, totally. And yeah. fun fact, Curbs is fun facts. I didn't share it earlier because I didn't want to interrupt your flow. I interrupted your flow in other ways in this episode, but I didn't want to interrupt this particular piece. Walt actually cast Phil Harris in 1966 after the success uh, yes. of The Jungle Book. He was yes, like, I did see that. I will include Phil in this Aristocats movie. Phil, please, I'm going to go die now. The world will mourn. We're going to move on. Great. So 
Phil Harris, you know, went on to also be Little John, which from a lot of, you know, the reviewers that I like to read, shout out Paul Estelle, a lot of people got really bored with the Phil Harris show by the time Robin Hood came out because all, and it's not, it's not his fault. Like this is, this is the thing that I find. No, it's just like, it's just overused. Like it just, it's overused with the one character and then. Yes. And, and what I find most interesting actually about Phil Harris's voice and the fact that he plays the same character, depending on who you talk to, they will call out a different of his three major Disney roles as Mm. like, Oh yeah. So, and so like you would say Baloo, I would say little John first. Really? Yes. I think and most I, people would say Baloo, though. I don't know, because I feel like someone like Robin might say We're going to have to do a poll on our Instagram. Clearly, we're going to yeah. have to. Because yeah. he's the same character in all of them. And this is, of course, mm-hmm. before, you know, studios were allowing actors to help kind mm-hmm. of, like, create their character. Like, he would have been told, yeah. this is what you're doing. And Disney would have, yeah. as a company, would have just decided this is the type of character we want him to play. He's just... Once again, O'Malley has no responsibilities. He's living the easy life. He's kind of a womanizer. Like, allegedly, he this character was loosely inspired by Clark Gable, which was that famous romantic hero of Hollywood's golden age. So he was supposed to be this, mm. you know, really debonair, suave, kind of like calm, cool, collected hottie, I guess, is kind of what he was supposed to be. And despite the sleaziness, he is a decent guy. Like, he's constantly saving... Marie because she's the worst. <laughs> like she's just first fall, she's falling, fell off something. First again. she's trying to stand on her two hind legs like a person. What are we doing? Put those four paws back on the ground. Like I don't want to see any of that tomfoolery ever again. Then she is somehow falling off the bridge when the other two kittens managed to hang on. I gotta like, say, I think my favorite part of the movie is like everything that happens in the water with like O'Malley and the ducks. Mm. I think that's my absolute favorite part of the movie. The geese, yeah. sorry. Yeah. The geese are great. I really do yeah. enjoy them. They're really good supporting characters. And Uncle Waldo, stop it. The Uncle yeah. Waldo is so good where he's like screaming at the top. And of their his little lungs. music, that's like my favorite part of the soundtrack too. Nailed it. Thank goodness. Yeah, they they are really great. And this is the thing. Some of O'Malley's scenes are the best, but not because of Mm -hmm. him. It's because of, like, who he's supported by or what's happening around him. But, I mean, again, Thomas O'Malley does develop real feelings for Duchess. He's not afraid of the fact that she has three kids. Like, this is, once they actually become kind of a unit is when he starts to be more like Tramp and less like Baloo because he's almost like yeah. shedding that silly, wooly Ritherman calling card type of character yeah. vibe and moving more into, okay, we need him to actually help move this plot along. Um, and you see that as he's trying to endear Duchess to like his lifestyle and all that and his friends and whatnot. Like he genuinely wants her to feel like she's welcome there and part of it. And mm-hmm. he saves all of them again at the end. And that's like really nice or whatever. And he finishes the movie as a new money kind of cat. The same way that Tramp yeah. is adopted into Jim Deere and Darling's family. So he True. feels a little bit older. They do his hair with that split in the middle. So he looks a little bit more mature. It just feels like a more believable partner for Duchess by that point. He's gone through some sort of development, mm-hmm. but not enough for me to feel like he really did anything. And I think part of that comes from this movie doesn't have a clear villain. There is no, like, like Edgar is the villain, but he's a bumbling buffoon. Like, he's not that evil. He's just impatient and incompetent. Like, really. He's I mean, not... the biggest flaw with this movie is that, like, Edgar just weighed out the cats. Like, he's... 
Well, this and sitting this is there the doing thing. all that math, like oh, nine lives times four. I'm like, that's not how this goes. No, either. and it and again, it's like he's so dumb that he's not yeah. a threat, really, because yeah. like the cats find their way home. He is hilarious, though. I enjoy him. I I yeah. enjoy him, but it's another reason that I think critics have said this movie's not memorable because it doesn't mm. have a Cruella. It doesn't have even a Sheer Khan. It doesn't have the rat yeah. scene. Like we don't, we do not have any real moments of climax or conflict. Yeah. Like there just isn't really anything. I mean, Edgar's wild though. He's pouring a whole bottle of sleeping pills that could kill a human into this milk. <laughs> the the mouse, Rockford, he's over here drinking some. I he's, love the his, little, his little heart's yeah. still ticking. Amazing. Yeah. How are the cats still alive? Like, the, and, and actually a lot of, there's These a surprising, well, there's a surprising amount of discourse online about like how crazy that whole scenario is. It's like these pills could kill a human. So how are the cats and mouse alive? And a lot of people calling out that a lot of adult cats are actually lactose intolerant. So drinking that much milk or cream that regularly would also kill them. Their stomachs would just like explode. So a lot of people coming for this movie as if it's the truth. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> if it's real it's, this is like a instruction video on how to feed your cats it's not it's this not. is giving yeah. me very much the like the stork bringing babies is ham like like da- damaging our children yeah. type situation it's kind of giving me that vibe like we're really not mm-hmm. seeing the forest for the trees like we need to yeah. pick out the fact that just edgar's a bumbling buffoon more than yeah. anything i think that's more important and, I mean, maybe he would have been a big, better villain if they had the original guy they wanted to do the voice. They had wanted Boris Karloff, who was the original Frankenstein's monster, to do the oh. voice. And then he died two years before the film came out. So his, oh. he was already ill by the time yeah. they started making the movie. And maybe that would have helped. Like, maybe that would have made him feel more sinister. But to your point, Edgar's fun the way he is. He's just not, like, a villain with a capital V. We could talk forever and ever on men about the characters But we can't do that because honestly, everyone would get bored and they'd stop listening. So let's instead turn our attention to another thing that a lot of people like, but I've already admitted I don't, which is the music in this movie. Mm -hmm. This is another George Burns film. We know him from movies like Robin Hood. I believe he did Sword in the Stone. He did, was it? Jungle Book, right? Which one? Jungle Book? Was it him? Yeah. Was that, was that George again? Honestly, I love how I'm the I one who so. talks about him and I can't remember. But I'll, I'm pretty sure. Maybe I should apologize to George right now. Sorry, George, for forgetting every single soundtrack you've ever done. He was a he was a classic for Disney at this time. Yeah, and, for sure. you know, we're hearing some similar types of scoring that we get from a lot of these George Bruins movies. The same way that Wooly is really silly in the storytelling and how everything comes kind of comes together George Bruins also has a calling card the difference here is that he did have a bit more of that French style dance music coming along with that like jazz influence and this movie was also the last one to have any songs by the Sherman Brothers we haven't really talked about them yet at all which is surprising because they were involved in a lot of the movies we've already talked about but they really made a name for themselves with some of those live action films like Mary Poppins is definitely one of their yeah like crown jewels in terms of what they contributed so they had been a Disney staple. They were really in with Walt. They were really tight with him, but they were growing frustrated with the studio management after Walt died. Like they, th- things were just not gelling. They didn't feel they had the creative freedom they wanted. And this speaks to what you were talking about earlier, where like there was no plan of who mm-hmm. should be in charge, who should be making yeah. decisions, who has the experience too. So fun fact, curves is fun facts. They left the studio and didn't come back until the year 2000 for the Tigger movie. They said, oh, wow. the Sherman brothers said, I'm coming back. 
for Tigger. Come back, <laughs> come back to do that one. I don't know if that was their last. Did one. they do? Did they do a bunch of Winnie the Pooh? Maybe that's why. Uh, well, they, they wouldn't have because they left the studio before this movie came out, The Aristocats, and then only came Wasn't back there, in two thousand. Like Winnie the Pooh shorts before this. I think later in the seventies. I don't oh. think it was in the 60s. Like, I think that... Then that is a very, very weird choice. It's crazy. I wonder <laughs> if they were... I didn't dig far enough into the Tigger movie at this point, but, yeah. like, I wonder if it was... Season, like, 13. We'll get to that one. I honestly thought you were going to say season finale, as in, like, their lives were ending <laughs> and this was it. But that... Because that's what I was thinking. I was like, maybe they wanted one last opportunity to, like, create and that, music. that was what they were making. That was the yeah. option. Yeah. yeah. I guess we'll find out if we ever get to the Tigger movie. However, yeah. all that being said, all the work that they did was cut, except for two songs, and this was a problem they had encountered before with films, which is ultimately mm. what had them out the door. And we've heard this type of thing with writers, directors, like, where... You know, for whatever reason, your work is just not included in the final product. But when it happens, it happens. over and over and over again, this becomes now a behavior and a pattern mm-hmm. and not just kind of like needs must. The songs yeah. that were kept from them were definitely two of the biggest ones. The Aristocats, which is the title song, was one of their songs. And it was sung by this guy named Maurice Chevalier. And he was a French legend. He came out of retirement. I actually kind of liked that one. I love it. I think it's great. Yeah. And when I was a kid, I thought it was someone doing a bad French accent. So knowing that it was actually a French person I feel makes me feel about better that. about it. Yeah. yeah. He came out of retirement to sing this song. It's the last thing he recorded um, before he died. And he did this as a favor to Walt, actually. Like, not Aww. because Walt asked him to, but because he admired Walt so much in what he yeah. was doing. So he's like, you know what? For Walt, I'll do it. And That's cool. Richard Sherman had actually recorded a demo of himself singing this song, um, imitating Chevalier's voice and sent it to him. And then Chevalier liked it so much that he imitated the imitation when he recorded it. So... It's it's a okay. huge caricature of what Chevalier's yeah. voice actually sounded like, which also again makes this more fun, makes it a bit more expressive. Yeah, it is it sure. is a very clever example of writing. The Sherman brothers were really good at lyrics. Like together mm-hmm. they were able to really craft some compelling pieces of music that set a personality for a film really well. And I agree with you. This mm-hmm. one really kind of sets the stage and makes an impact in a really, really good way. And um Chevalier actually then was credited before anyone else involved with production that's how important this song was to the overall film now nice the obvious breakout song though from this movie is everybody wants to be a cat and I've already said I don't like it I don't like this sequence for a number of reasons one I think you said it before it just gets loud and rambunctious like what are we doing Mm -hmm. like and not in a fun way to me I've hated I've, I've never really liked when the piano falls through the floors, because similar mm-hmm. to you with the paint on the piano, I'm like, that piano is done, so that's just yeah. that's no good. It's not still working. And this is where we get those bedroom eyes with Duchess you were talking about as well. Oh, yeah. She oh, yeah. has a very risque moment in this song. She gets the, the harp going, you know? <laughs> Everyone has all moony-eyed, and then she says, I'm not going to sing it, because I want you to hear what she says. She sings, if you want to turn me on, play your horn, don't spare the thought. <laughs> And blow a little soul into the tune. Duchess, you dirty minx. What? Like, that's crazy. That's insane. That is wild. And then Scat Cat's like, wait for me. I was like, don't. Like, don't. I don't want anybody waiting. 
for anybody. Yeah. <laughs> this is crazy. And then this song starts to get into that spot Disney loves to be in with the cultural stereotyping. And you know where I'm going with this. First of oh, all, yes. we get a lot of a lot of the scat cats are coded as black, right? So mm-hmm. scat cat himself is clearly a black person, which is fine, except that we're now towing that line about like traditional ideas of jazz musicians and kind of getting into like, well, jazz musicians are always wearing hats and they're always playing the trumpet and like whatever Do you else. know if it was a black actor cast or if it we was had, a black actor it was okay that's yes good. That's so this was progress. this was one of the films that they had originally wanted louis armstrong for mm. so louis armstrong had been arranged he was in he was good to go but then he had to back out due to illness so he was replaced by oh. scatman crothers who okay. was a black like jazz performer so it is an accurate kind of pairing but we're still uh-huh. just kind of towing that line of being like, mm-hmm. why are we so adjacent to things that like are so easy to blow out of proportion or so easy to mm-hmm. caricature in a way that's not appropriate? Like the Chinese cat, Shun Gong. Yeah. What is that? This is by far the most like offensive racial stereotype we have seen thus far. I think um, yeah. with, with the exception of Dumbo, that scene with the roustabouts is probably the worst that we get um, in the animal films so far. But this is really bad. Like the lyrics of that he sings while using chopsticks to play the piano. What are we doing? No one plays the piano with chopsticks. The <laughs> actor who played that character is, of course, white. Mm. And it's just nonsensical lyrics with a horrible... Chinese accent where they're turning L's to R's and things like that. Like it's just yeah. so over exaggerated and it's just purely offensive. Like it's, it's seemingly random string of vaguely ethnic words for some reason, just to get a laugh. But it's like, that is yeah. precisely the problem. Like, yeah, this is why it's so obviously a problem to us. Now this section of the song was removed from later versions of the soundtrack. And of course in the theme parks, this version does not like that verse is taken out. It's not included. Mm-hmm. They've also removed Marie's singing in the parks because so many people found it annoying. They took it out. Yeah, fair. Yeah. I mean, it is really, she's off key. It's bad. So Marie plus offensive racial stereotyping, no bueno. So as an adult, that's another reason I just don't like this song. We just, yeah, no. And the Xerox Mm -hmm. animation. We're really just, we're cutting and pasting as if we're getting an arts and crafts degree. Yeah. It's not a winner. It's not a winner. So like a lot of other, you know, movies before it that also had racial problems, uh, including all the Bambi. animal movies. Like, yeah. how are they even doing this with it's animal they're all around the same. It's all these are all yeah. a lot of the older films. Right. And, and yeah. the difference with princess films. And I think the reason we didn't see a lot of these issues is because those are white stories. Mm. It's just white people. Yeah. Like they don't, yeah. you know, and, and including a more diverse cast of characters would have made it obvious that you are either stereotyping or making fun of other people groups because they're not needed for the story. They're not included. Right. And I think that's what makes this new snow white conversation so fascinating to me as Mm -hmm. well, but that's another conversation for another time. There's so much that could be said about that. So unpack that later. Oh my goodness. You know, I will girl. I've got the packing cubes and like three travel suitcases. I am ready to go. (laughs) 
But like many other soundtracks before this one, it was never actually fully available as a commercial recording until years and years and years after it came out. And I don't know why they had that. Like this one had a studio cast non-soundtrack album that came out with the movie instead. So when the film came out, they're like, here, have a soundtrack that's not. So all the songs were sung by people who weren't the cast. For that some makes reason. No, sense. no, it doesn't. Now, the fun part, though, is that the Disneyland musical director, his name was Tutti Camerata, he was able to direct the production of this Aristocats and Other Songs LP that came out with the film. And so it became a much more big band soundtrack, which is actually like incredible sounding. Like you can find it on Spotify, you can find it on YouTube. The arrangements are crazy. They're like Vegas style orchestration. And the Peggy Lee stuff wouldn't have happened yet, where they had that whole like lawsuit. Thing. Right. Like, could that have been that wouldn't have been a reason because they didn't no. know that was going to be an issue. Okay. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And I think like her situation was a little bit different too because she helped direct some creative decisions as well. Like that was part of the reason that she was yeah. suing later on is because she's like, I made this movie what it is. In a yeah. film like The Aristocats, it would just be the cast singing. Like they they yeah. didn't actually you know, change the fact that Trusty shouldn't die at the end. And they didn't, you know, voice five Save characters. Trusty. Yeah. yeah. So there was a lot of freedom for the, you know, musical director on this kind of LP to just kind of make it whatever worked best for each song because it wasn't mm-hmm. an official soundtrack. So each song just sounds so much better. Would highly recommend that people who have any interest in this soundtrack listen to that version because it is so much better. They included it on the Legacy Collection soundtrack, which came out in 2015, and that was the first time that the complete recordings of the Aristocat soundtrack was all together in one spot, 45 years after the movie came out. And that Legacy Collection, as a side note, they've done many, many, many Disney films, including ones like Pocahontas. They are incredible. Highly recommend. If you have a Disney soundtrack that you like, see if there's a Legacy Collection version of it available to stream, because they are just just kiss. You get like special voice recordings sometimes you get demos you get alan menken singing things oh my goodness what a are these on spotify they sure are and you know what else is on spotify scenario d yeah we are so obviously this movie had to come out eventually it came out around christmas and it was generally well liked but it wasn't considered an overwhelming favorite for all the reasons that we've already talked about a lot Mm -hmm. of people think it's plotless they think it's unmemorable they think that it's really derivative as well like phil harris's recycled performance is particularly egregious to a lot of reviewers they're like why are we watching the same movie again with phil harris Mm -hmm. and it was poorly reviewed in 1987 when it was re-released as well but At the time, it was competing with movies like The Care Bears, Rainbow Bright, and Transformers, and critics begrudgingly were like, this is still better than those. (laughs) Like, Disney, even at its worst, is still better than other animated features at the time. And I found that really intriguing because I don't think that would be true now. Even the past, like, 15 years, that is not the case. Disney has to work a lot harder to outperform. But at the time, Disney was still very much the trailblazer. And this movie, understandably, did really well in France and Britain. And this is, you know, when we started to see Marie really blow up in Japan, where that Mm -hmm. kawaii cute culture is really big. So anything that is adorable, they love it. That's why Chip and Dale is really big in huge parts of Asia as well, because they're just, like, so exaggerated. And I think Mm -hmm. Marie is just cute. If her mouth is closed, she's cute. (laughs) True. And has a boat. So... But you know, this wouldn't be a discussion of a Disney film if I didn't have a few more downer points just to throw at you right in the last second, just to keep you guessing. Hit me. I will say, we've talked about, in my opinion, the most offensive part of this movie. I think what's so fascinating about this story and the fact that, like, O'Malley's from, you know, 
he's an alley cat, so he's coming from kind of the other side of the tracks, and Duchess grew up in this really privileged household. It really opens up conversations around culture, class, and gender in different ways than we've seen, mm-hmm. and not necessarily in ways that paint this as a super horrible movie, but more just prompt questions, prompt discussions, and prompt mm-hmm. a really heated series of comments on one of the essays I read. It was written by, like, a university student, and this one person just came for them. and was like, what you said is stupid and dumb, and, like, it was hilariously wow. aggressive and then everyone's defending the author it was wild honestly i had such a great time reading those comments shout out to the person who wrote that article i'm with you girl you're fine <laughs> you're fine anyway very very briefly discussions around culture with this movie is often themed around music we've touched on it a little bit already but this idea of how cultural capital was heavily influenced by exposure to the arts is a way that disney showed that like the kittens are classy and cultured mm. because yeah. they paint and they sing and they play instruments like the idea here that was very common especially you know back in you know early 1900s but even leading into the 21st century the more exposure you had to the arts the higher your intelligence was perceived by other people, Mm. right? Like think about all the kids you saw as being super smart in school. They probably played an instrument, you know, they probably had some sort of creative skill and Disney really leaned into that to help differentiate the different groups of animals that we're seeing here. And even when Duchess is seen playing her harp and being weirdly sexual during that song, scat, the scat cats have like loud, aggressive jazz instruments. They're completely opposite to what she's doing in that space. So We're creating kind of a dichotomy or a divide between these two different cultures, even though they can exist harmoniously, right? Mm -hmm. And then you throw on top of that all the stereotypes of Italians and Chinese and hippies and Russians and dogs as southern hillbillies and the geese as, you know, crazy British people. And then, you know, what a fun mixing pot it is about culture. From there, then, it's also obvious that you can make the leap into discussions of class. I mean aristocat Mm. is a play on aristocrat which of course Mm -hmm. is a description for a different you know economic class duchess and her kittens are clearly part of the elite society and this their inheritance sets them apart from the lowly you know alley cats in paris yeah Yeah. they're clean they're well groomed they're really pristine when compared to the you know the rougher dirty looking cat tom's Mm -hmm. family appears to be right and they're wealthy, but they don't have, you know, that functional kind of family relationship, right? Like Edgar's betraying them, their owner is really old, but then in comparison, you know, the poor downtrodden cats have a great family connection and how nice that right. they don't have money, yeah. but they have each other, which mm-hmm. we see that type of story play out so often in conversations, even around race, right? Like I'm thinking of films like The Help, even in, mm-hmm. um, Princess and the Frog, you see that where it's like, I'm yeah. a gumbo. Like it's yeah. you know, like very much like we don't have a lot, but we share what we have and that makes us feel mm-hmm. like we have a lot. Very, very interesting to see these types of conversations happen with animals, especially when it's yeah. so obviously coded this way. Like they're not trying to pretend that's what this is. It's like, yeah. that, this is it exactly is. it. Yeah. And then finally with gender too, like Marie has a bow. She's really like pretty and she uses her femininity to get what she wants like i'm a lady that's why you're you're not a lady you're nothing but a sister iconic line iconic line from berlioz is so good yeah (laughs) and like o'malley needing to save the day in all these situations because she's the worst and him insinuating that duchess and her kittens need him to like get anywhere like these conversations are all ones that have just always kind of followed behind this movie in a way Mm -hmm. that doesn't make it problematic inherently. I mean, the racism, yes, does. That's why it has the cultural warning at the front. But these conversations around 
more just like socioeconomic issues. It's just always there. It's kind of, Mm -hmm. it makes this movie really ripe for the picking when it comes to writing commentary on pop culture or looking at Disney as a way to expose kids to maybe different ideas of how society is set up, which makes it sound like such a heavy movie when it's like there are dogs in baby baskets and like riding unicycles in this movie. Like it's not a serious movie, but some of the conversations that come out of it can be. And a few fun facts just to close us out here. You know, even with all of these heavier, more serious conversations that people can get into fights on the internet about this movie. There was almost a direct-to-video sequel in 2007. Did you know that? I actually came across that when researching Uh this, but I didn't know that before. Yeah, it was going to focus on Marie having a romance with another kitten on a luxury cruise ship. (laughs) And a jewel thief might have been involved somehow. (laughs) For some reason. And John Lasseter was the chief creative officer at that time. And he shut that down immediately. He's like, this is trash and we're not doing that. Thank goodness. But that doesn't mean they're going to stop trying to make this into something because Questlove, you know, Questlove, you know who that is? Mm -hmm. He's allegedly been hired to direct a new live action, pseudo live action remake of this movie. How fun. Yeah. So once again, that challenge of expressing emotions with uh, CG animated movies will resurface. All right, Lish, I have a serious apology. I feel like I turned our show into borderline, like, NC-17 content by (laughs) referencing growing heroin so many times. Like, just talking about hard drugs. We're going to have to mark this one explicit. Yeah, mark it explicit because your girl's out here talking about drugs, also about abusing children. I did mention not slapping five-year-olds, but the fact that I alluded to it at all feels a little bit risque Mm -hmm. for a a family show. And I just want to acknowledge that A, I don't grow heroin, B, I don't take heroin, and C, I don't slap five-year-olds. I don't think anyone grows heroin. Right. Do you cook it? (laughs) This is like that scene in Easy A when she's no, is it is it Easy A or Fault in Our Stars where it's talking about like doing weed and it's like you don't do weed, you smoke weed and now yeah. I'm making the show more again about drugs. Apologies, I guess, <laughs> to everybody at home. Clearly, I'm not a drug doer, so I shouldn't be talking about something I know nothing about. So yeah. I apologize. Yeah, apology accepted. Uh, my apology is simple. I called the geese ducks, and that just feels rude. So I am sorry. I did say they were like my favorite part of the movie, and then I misanimaled them. So I do apologize uh, to the geese, not ducks. I'm sure they'll forgive you. They yeah. seem like swell gals, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. yeah, they're nice. And as always, we had a lot of resources that made this show possible for me. Again, like heavy always. I always have these really heavy hitting titles Mm -hmm. that just sound way too serious for Disney films. But Disney films can be serious. So up first, we have an article called Classism, Sexism, and Deviance. Disney's The Aristocats by someone named Luby Maliki. And then I also read another article called Ideology in the Aristocats, Portrayals of Culture, Class, Gender, and Race Through Kittens, if you can believe it, from someone called My Wordy Mile. And finally, Disney's The Aristocats on Records by Greg Airbar for cartoon research, just to lighten it up a little bit. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, Paul Estelle is always in the background, but I thought I wasn't going to shout him out. Now I already have. So, Paul, thank you again for doing everything that you do and making my job so much easier by doing the work for me. Bless Paul. 
Plus Paul. I read a few articles from D23, one about Disney history and another one on Wolfgang Reitherman. I also read a bunch of The Illusion of Life by our faves, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson. What would we do without them? Probably suffer greatly. Probably. Yeah, definitely. If you're looking for more shenanigans like these, which you probably are, make sure to subscribe to the Scenario D podcast wherever you love to listen. And better yet, why not rate us? Because those stars, they go a long way. They sure do, Lish. We are also excited to be bringing you all of the facts, feels, and shenanigans over on YouTube. You can now support us by liking, subscribing, ringing the notification bell, and just generally doing everything else you'd normally do for a channel you love. So go watch our latest episode using the link in this episode's description. And as always, don't forget to catch us on Instagram at Scenario D Podcast. You are going to love the magic we're making there. Yeah.